first of all, thank you so much for all the help that all of you have given us over the last year for this monastery, for this this uh, mandala, for this center of basic sanity. Hopefully, that's what we're working on. In order to do that, we have to look at a lot of, uh, look at a lot of craziness. And you can do that. Help us. Help us in any way you can. And thank you, and thank you, and thank you. This morning's uh, Dharma topic or talk is called boundaries. There's lots of different kinds of boundaries. There's a natural boundary of our skin. It's a boundary. Without this, things would not function so well. There's the natural boundary between any two things, between the heart and the lungs and so on. These are all obvious. But I wanted to start out with those natural boundaries, which need to be there if we're to function at all. We're going to continue to function in any pragmatic, relative way. And then, of course, there are boundaries that we set up to protect our property, to from, you could say, from the cows getting loose or getting into the neighbor's pasture. I mean, all those simple kind of mundane things like that. And then there are boundaries based on fear, where we set up boundaries that are because we're worried about something else. And some of those are could be valid. I could go on, but you, you already know what I'm saying there. Or maybe not. You might think that your opinion about something, your judgment about something is based on re what reality, on your evaluation of something is correct. So therefore you get to be what? Prejudiced or be against that group of people because of the way they talk, the way they look, everything. So what do I say about this? If you've been listening to me very long, I say it is about being aware of it. This is about awareness. This is not a belief. It's not a judgment, evaluation, conclusion, or any other contraption you have in your mind that protects your silly, I may say it that way, self-centeredness. You don't have to live this way, my friends. You don't, ha you don't have to live out of the fear of something else, fear of losing control, fear, 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 fear. It's not that you, that that wouldn't happen situationally, spontaneously, in certain, at certain times when there's a fear of the temperature's gone down so far or the furnace has gone off. Of course, there's all kinds of situations that show up. But look really closely through your sitting practice of meditation, through sitting down, facing a wall, whether you consider yourself a Buddhist or not. Sit down, hold still, face the wall, and watch the way the mind works by watching what moves. And when I say what moves, I'm not just talking about the initial movement of the mind, the thought patterns arising spontaneously out of who knows where. You know where thoughts come from. You're pretty unusual. So observe, observe, be aware of the movement that happens when the, the thoughts come tumbling down and are followed by emotional tagalongs. You have a thought about something and it may be have some accuracy, accuracy to it relatively, but it may be about that belongs to me and that does not belong to you. You do not own anyone. If you think you do, you will suffer and you will probably torture the person that 
you think you own. I'm not saying there aren't conventions. Marriage is one of them. Look very closely at those, please. Right and wrong is extra. If you operate out of right, as soon as you operate out of right and wrong, you have left the true spiritual path. I'm not saying you're not on what you might call a spiritual path. Theism operates that way all the time. What we call non-theism or no solid center to anything. No self here, no self there. You need to see it. Don't believe anything I'm saying. That would be very disrespectful to not only to me, but to your own intelligence. Don't believe. Don't conclude. Don't, 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 don't. But that doesn't mean shut down and go the other way where I can't do, I can't see, I can't look, I can't. Yes, you can. You can. You can receive this incredible world as it is. As it is. Soku. Immediate. Right now. This. Soku Koji. Order of immediate light. Immediately. How do you do that? Slowly. You can't force it. You have, to, you have to go the opposite direction and watch the way you keep setting up boundaries against everything. Opinions, judgments, ideas. All protecting what? An imaginary center. There's no one here. Don't believe that. I don't believe it. I see it. I don't need to believe this is a stick or it's made of wood. I know it. And that's how I know nothing is separate from anything else. It's that solid for me. But it's not a conclusion, an opinion, a fixation, or a judgment. It's just, it's just fire is hot, water is wet, earth is hard. Wind moves. <laughs> Relative truth is very, very clear and definite. The Buddha's, uh, on the Buddha's awakening when he was threatened by the daughters of Mara, which is a, a way of talking about aspects of his own mind that are coming and saying, you don't know what you're doing. This is an enlightenment. What makes you think you, out of all the millions and billions of people, suddenly you know something? And he put his hand into the earth and said, this earth is my witness. Barsha Mudra, it's called traditionally. It's just the way you'll see images of the Buddha Rupas that were the Buddha's, one of his hands is touching the earth. He probably drove it right into the earth. He probably hit the earth. He probably didn't tear up like I'm doing. He hit the earth. This, I see this. This is the only territory you have right under your ass. And you don't even own that. That's on loan from Pratitya Samudpada. Look it up. Unless you already know what it means. And if you know what it means, then come and tell me what it means. <clears throat> you have to do this yourself. You have to do it. This old man can harp at you about it or wave a stick in the air or point or any other Dharma teacher who is a true teacher, one who teaches out of what they're looking at, 
not out of what they read in a book. It's not that the books don't help you. you. You need stair steps to get to the top of the mountain. But you don't need any more steps when you're looking at it. Steps are gone. The footprints are gone. Look behind you. See any footprints? You can do this with your consciousness, with your awareness, not with your thought patterns. You need them. Fourth skanda, thinking, concepts, conceptualization, very valuable, very, very necessary. So what do we do with boundaries? The first thing you do is you look at them. If they're in your mind, you just are aware. You sit and you're aware. That's why you, uh, uh, that's why in the Zen tradition, we stare. I wouldn't say stare. I would say we observe a little bit softer. We, we observe, we gaze at a wall, a boundary. You have, you have it right in front of you. That's why we do that, so that the what continues to show up in the mind stream, in that feeling area of the consciousness, in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth consciousness, as it is characterized in the Yogacara tradition. There might be 15. There might only be three. There might, there might, there might. But you need to see it. With the help of the lineage, with the help of ancient teachings and contemporary teachings today. Sit down, hold still, watch the movement, because that which is watching the movement is the awareness. That which is moving is odds and ends, thoughts and memories, emotions, daydreams, falling asleep, waking back up, anything that could come, dogs barking in the yard. Anything that moves needs to be observed so that at some point, or points, it's not even a point, you will realize or see that there's no one looking, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. There's no one, there's no thinker, there's no smeller, there's no identity behind it. It's just, just consciousness. It's without attributes. You have to see it. If you don't, and I'm not condemning you to anything, but you probably will continue to get upset about this and be happy about that. Get upset about that, but be pretty happy about that. Back and forth. Samsara, samsara. It's a constant light and dark, light and dark, light and dark. It, has, it needs to be seen. It doesn't need to be abandoned like it has been taught at different times by different people. You don't have to leave anything. You don't have to get rid of anything. But you might have to look at right at it to see the way it functions so that you can see the way you hang on. You don't have to let go of anything. Just watch the way you cling. Look at the clinging. And, and if you see it totally, completely, thoroughly, through and through, over and over, through and through, over and over, you'll see that there's no personhood there. Nisvabhava. There's no person nor is there anything that is actually that you're clinging to. The whole dynamic is, if you see it, it's an illusion. You just see the illusion, and you might even smile. If you don't see it, it's a delusion, and you're befuddled by it. Pardon me for using those heavy words. You're confused. You, you buy into that, and then, then apply that kind of formulaic samsaric grasping situation to the rest of your life. Well, she should, they should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said, I shouldn't have done. I, all that right and wrong stuff is just makes things more and more complicated.
So I could go on and on about boundaries, different kinds of walls of the mind. Shin Mukege, walls of the mind. In the Heart Sutra, written a couple thousand years ago, as far as we know, translated by Red Pine. That would be a very good translation if you're interested. We chant that particular translation uh, in this uh, monastery a few times a week. Been doing that for years. We also uh, chant the one in traditional one in Japanese. So let's have some questions about boundaries. Here. Dear Chibali, if we're on the spiritual path, is there a boundary or a separation between things that happen in our mundane life and the spiritual life? Oh, there's certainly, certainly separations and divisions and gates and so on. So, yeah, and it would be different with each person, how that functioned. Some of it would be more um, conventional, situational. You can't do anything about it. You just notice that, <clears throat> like something that you, because you live in a monastery and you've lived here for years, you've, you've stepped through one of those, which is distance. Distance is a great boundary. Well, there might not be anything there except time. It takes a long time to get to the monastery or a long time to get to the cushion or a long time to get to your friends or your, your intimate partner or your family. More about that? Yesterday you were talking about, and you often talk about no improvement. I do. And you said, if it's a true spiritual path, there's no improvement. No. Can we have that same attitude or should we have that same attitude in every aspect of our life? Be a good idea. So this doesn't mean that you don't improve. It's a difficult area because uh, what happens, the ego mind, which is a self-centered part of the consciousness that shrinks up into a me, me, me and demanding things or, or um, pushing things away or fluffing things up or control, 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 control. Let's get control of this whole thing. It's all over the place. So I would say that if you see what this is, there may be a lots of things that are you could call um, aspects of awakening. The actual awakening isn't about creating something where you see reality, where you decide to see reality and you see it. And you're very kind and loving and respectful and all of the, all of that. But if you see what this is, then you, it's very likely that you would, because you see so clearly who you are and what this is, when you see someone else's suffering, you wouldn't necessarily, and, and they're putting it on you, blaming you for how they feel. You wouldn't necessarily use that against them or you wouldn't go to war with them. So that would be a, a, a side uh, an, an aspect of the fundamental understanding, which is there isn't anything. Shunyata. This is not just some hocus pocus. It is true. And you have to see it, but it is ultimate truth. And therefore, you can't see it because if you saw it, it'd be relative. But ego is looking for conclusions and it'll, if it'll, it'll settle for, I feel more spiritual. I feel more kind. I feel more. I feel more. There's all kinds of teachings out there that that uh, Atisha's Seven Points of Mind Training has lots of slogans in there that are about improving. I'm not against that. That's, that may be the only thing some people can do. So we need to help everybody. 
So some of those slogans apply to a person who is caught in the, in the trap of their own convention, their own conclusions, their own ideas, and are, and are in that prison of their mind, uh, trapped by fear of if they let go of that or if they walk out of that or they see through that, it might get worse. The ego may be threatened. In an area in the mundane world, maybe exercise, for example, where it looks like the illusion of control is stronger, like we can, um, it looks like our muscles get bigger as we mm -hmm. exercise more. Yes. Um, how can we still work with that area with an attitude of no improvement? Well, if it's, if it's uh, uh, exercising muscle, that's a different aspect. That's that's relative truth. And that's something that shows up and relatively you do have a say so about that for a while. So you do have it. So that's why it is so difficult to use that same. You can use the, the images there and they're often used by all kinds of teachers will use those images uh, to talk about the spiritual path. But the actual spiritual path is no path, but you have to see it. So there might have to be a path of Shila Samadhi and Prajna, or the, as, as I was talking about yesterday, the, and uh, at the, one of the paramitas, and talking about those six paramitas are, aren't really linear, but we teach them that way because you have to do it some way. But one person might be constantly working on the paramita of patience, on, on trying to understand what that is. They, if you understand patience, you've got them all. That's why it's set up that way. It looks like, well, you go through this and then finally you get to wisdom or these are all skillful means and you, the first five, and then you finally become wise. The first paramita, dana paramita, a generosity, that may be your particular dharma footprint. You see, there's no giver. There's no giving. Nothing has been given. There's threefold purity. It's free from the conceptual thing that tags along and tries to explain everything. So build it weightlifting, weightlifting, obviously, if you do enough of it, you're going to get stronger, you're going to look stronger. But some of those areas are still really complicated. Diet is a really complicated one that I've been trying to understand since I um, first turned to that not too long ago, 20 or 30 years ago. The more about that, there's a lot of room for questions there if you have more. Help us. It feels like those areas are easier to separate. Yes. And say, well, I should be able to get results if I exercise or diet. It feels like I make a separation between that and my spiritual life. Um, mm -hmm. As if the teachings that you're talking about don't apply to those other mundane things. And I'm wondering how to. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's hard to ask a question in the area, but I, let me let me uh, throw this in, and we and then you can ask a question if this helps you. Is repetition is very important, and the, the interesting thing about thing about repetition, whether it's a mundane path or the the spiritual path, is you, is eventually you see that you can't repeat anything, but you have to see that. That's not something that you kind of conclude that you can somehow prove to the world that you can't do anything twice. It's, it's something that, uh, that you see with consciousness that is amazing, and it's quite humorous. 
because we see how we latch on, we fixate on something because we don't want, if you're angry, you don't want anybody coming along and saying, it'll be all right, or, or the other direction coming along and kind of make fun of your anger. We'll point out to you how your reaction to that is not actually about what just triggered it. It's about your deep collection of hooks and claws that are into a certain thing that you have not seen yet. But it gets triggered out here by this person saying something or this person doing something. And suddenly this, uh, the demon comes out of the cave raging. Know what I'm talking about? Sure you do. And it's not about fighting that demon. You can't, you can't fight it. You, you will lose because it's just intense anger. And why can't you, uh, why can't you win? Or why can't you see through that? Or why can't you stop that? Because there isn't anyone. There is no solid being. The illusion of some, excuse me, of illusion, the illusion of some kind of conqueror, that's relative truth. That's what's happening in the world. If it's wrong, we need to correct it. If it's right, we need to fluff it up. Relative truth, buying into relative truth. And so it has to be seen. And where do we see it? See the leading edge of it. See the way you slowly start to buy into, slowly reach for that cave of demons and open that door and let that out. Based on some, some situation, some tree falling over or somebody's comment or somebody's even offhand comment about you or about something you've done or something. And suddenly, instead of receiving that simply as it was, as a trigger and noticing that that roiling around in the background is something you, that is yours. It's your responsibility to work with that, not to take that out, roll it up into um, balls of thumbtacks and throw it at somebody. So that, because that's what people do. They get rid of somewhat temporarily. So get, they get rid of that by throwing and blaming, just a finger pointing. It doesn't have to be the actual finger. It can be you can just sit there and look at them. I can look at you. And, You see it? You can, you can actually develop that. Just a, a look. You know, how, so different. Everyone has their own style of how to look grouchy <laughs> without, without making it so obvious that someone can blame you. Are you grouchy? No, fine. How are you doing? Well, I was doing good until I took a look at you. <laughs> so, I mean, we have a little bit of humor, and sometimes that humor works, and sometimes that makes them, we start fighting even more. So. You can't win. You don't have to worry about winning. You should lose. Lose as much as you can, but don't, don't allow someone to trample on you necessarily. And that's, that's your awareness that needs to do that question. Wonderbali, uh, is it necessary to see a boundary between the spiritual and mundane? If you don't see a boundary, is that ignorance, Bali? Not necessarily. It's, they, they, that area is, is different for each person, so there's no, uh, I may, if you keep asking questions about it, I, something may show up that is, that, that is more about pointing at something. It's so different for each person. Once you step, step on the spiritual path, then it's hard to stay there because everything wants to chime in. The ego wants to say, well, this is spiritual. Look what you're doing. Look how much you're helping these people. This is spiritual. No, it's not. This is about your ego wanting to appear helpful. Big difference between helping somebody truly, genuinely, right from here, and actually looking for a credential so that you look helpful. 
This also does not mean that if you do that, that you might not actually be helpful to someone. You could. And if you just fed a whole family, because you took food over to them, you might be making sure everybody knows what you're doing. Or you might just, it might be in your own mind stream that you're, you know, that kind of invisible pat on the back you're giving yourself. What does that do? Ego feeds on that. And it postpones the time when you need to look at the fundamental reality, which is, can be terrifying. You can cover up the fundamental nature of reality by, by just any one of the three poisons. If you're angry all the time, you, you, if you're angry all the time and you're always looking for revenge or you're throwing out or you're pointing fingers, you'll never really know how terrified you are. You can hide from it through anger. It takes a lot of uh, sitting practice of meditation. I'm very biased. I'm not saying you can't. There might be some magic pill somewhere. Go ahead. But to sit down, hold still, and voluntarily sit down for hours and hours and look at the nature of your mind, eventually, it's very difficult to stay mad for very long. You won't be able to stop it. You don't need to stop anything. But you need to see, see what it is so that it doesn't take over your life and hurt people or hurt yourself. Question from Prakash. Go ahead, Prakash. How to know own Buddha, na own Buddha nature? Look at the confusion. This is what the Buddha did. The Buddha awoke to his true nature. I wasn't there, but the way I understand the teachings for that, which I've been looking at, not only the teachings out there in the teachings, but the teachings as I understand it in this mind stream for close to half a century. You have to look at the confusion. If you're going to work with something, you don't immediately patch it up because it, it's bleeding there and it's bleeding there. And it's, bleeding. it's a good idea to see what's the cause of this. If you can, there might not be any way to look at the cause. The Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth, life is suffering, frustration. So you, you go and look at the frustration. And how do you do that? In this tradition, you sit down and you look. It's voluntarily sitting down sitting down and looking at the way the mind keeps grasping and rejecting and shutting down and grasping and rejecting and shutting down with all the stories that come and go don't control anything this is why i teach shikantaza rather than shamatha vipassana if you need to do shamatha vipassana or uh, mindfulness awareness practice please do that you'll know please do that practice it might be a good idea to have a teacher help you with that <clears throat> I teach shikantaza because it's then that way, if you sit down and hold still, you'll do, you'll do some version of one or the other. You'll either just watch what's moving, uh, vipassana, natural vipassana, or you'll uh, tune in to your, the movement of your breath or your diaphragm. And we, you can do that in shikantaza. It's the fixation on it, trying to fix it so that you become a meditator, capital M, a, a good meditator. So, Prakash, just observe. Just sit down. Find time to sit down by yourself and observe the, the commotion in the mind, the passion, aggression, and, and ignorance in the mind without repairing it. The Buddha didn't cover it up. He just kept looking and kept looking and, and kept looking and kept... This is my story about it, based on what I'm looking at, what I've been looking at for a lot longer than he looked at it. His was six years. Mine was more like 30 years before you begin to see, he began to see, or anybody who awakens begins to see the nature of reality. This doesn't mean you stop having breakfast. 
or you don't have to wear clothes because you have clothes of light, some baloney like that, some romantic idea that covers up the actuality of it. It is suffering and it's intense and it's everywhere. And most people don't know it. When they say life is suffering, people say, ah, oh, that's a negative teaching. No, it's the truth. It's just that people cover it up with passion, opinions and ideas and judgments, aggression, uh, blaming others for the confusion and ignorance, shutting down, buying into a particular localized, specified truth about everything. It's not that that relative situation or that logic or that analysis isn't relatively correct. Yes, it is. But analysis will not see what this is. That's stair steps. You have to get to the top and then you, if there's a self there, you need to jump. And it is not suicide. <clears throat> You're welcome, Prakash. Yes. Kozan Bowie. Go ahead, Kozan. There's a question in the chat box from Ivan. Ivan. Is there a boundary between the suffering of others and ourselves? If you're a meditator, not for long. Initially, yes. We're very self-centered and we're very much about ourselves and protecting ourselves and advancing ourselves. And maybe a little bit of attention paid to others, especially if it's a biological connection, our family, we're more likely maybe to spend a lot of time with somebody we're in a blood relation. Yet that whole area is so situational. But eventually the very vow itself says, be with all things, save all beings, put everybody before yourself. That's a pretty tall order because we're so attached to who we are, protecting ourselves first. This doesn't mean you go the other way and try to ignore yourself, don't, don't eat or don't sleep and live in a cave and just pray for others. It's not that romantic. There. Question from Adriana. Adriana. How can I practice having no demand when I feel like I need attention from someone who doesn't want to engage with me? Read that again, please. How can I practice having no demand when I feel like I need attention from someone who doesn't want to engage with me? Just look at it. I don't know what else to say other than just just look at your look at what happens and then look at your response to it. Just just look at the dynamic. This is what sitting practice of meditation is about. This is just observe that. So if if there's some aspect of your question I missed, then come back this way. Chisho. Chishwang is trying to understand or even look at the boundaries a distraction in the awareness practice but well you know it could be anything can turn into some kind of a distraction or some kind of a, a way station or a rest area where you stopped actually observing what's happening but you may need to do that and so this is when i say don't do anything unless you have to don't step on the spiritual path if you, if you come in to get close to this person and say, well, I don't know if I need to do this or not. I say, well, I would say, well, don't do it. Do anything you don't have to do. And if the person said, well, you mean don't meditate? Do you need to meditate? Well, yes, I do. I said, well, then meditate. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Well, why do it? No guesswork. Don't do the guesswork. Don't do the speculation. I mean that. So am I, am I close to what you're looking for or do you want something else? Chisho. Um, I mean, is boundary an addition to what is already happening? And in that sense, I meant, are we actually adding by calling something a boundary or trying to understand that boundary? A little bit. But there's, there's a lot, if you're sitting a lot, there's a lot of awareness around the boundary before you see what the boundary is. There's a lot of looking like any kind of a, any kind of a Dharma gate, which is a kind of boundary, but it's a gate. So uh, we're really calling it a gate. It might take you a while to find out where the latch is or where the hinges are. You might have to install some hinges on that gate. Otherwise it's just a wall. But you could, that's using a silly metaphor, but that is what it takes to look at that wall and see that that, that is, uh, that is a, a, a boundary based, quite often based on fear of seeing what's behind it. Because that, that can be frightening to ego. But the people who are frightened are usually meditators. The people who, are, who are, don't know they're frightened are people who have no spiritual path and just try to operate on everything with relative truth, try to fix things, try to train things, try to lecture things, or people get people to follow certain, do this, do this, do this. And I'm not saying some of that isn't very, very helpful to people. Cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, 12 step programs can be can actually help someone move away from the addiction and live, live a, a life that is uh, relatively uh, free of uh, uh, difficulties no guarantee of it, but sometimes that can be very helpful. But is it the spiritual path? Perhaps. It, it might be. Yes, sir. If you see what this is, are you still upset by this and happy with that? Yes. When I say that, though, I would say the, the, the qualifier would say that the happiness still arises and the upsetness still arises, but there's no being, there's no identity that is hindered by the, being upset. Might sound impossible, but you can actually be upset with no outflows, no raised finger, no raised stick. It's just anger. And it may pass through quickly. It may reside in your uh, wherever. And, 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 there, and this is where the paramita patience comes in not waiting for something. You just are whatever arises. This is patience. Whatever arises, you are the anger. I sometimes say, be the shit you're trying to get rid of. For 30 seconds, give it a little bit of space, a little bit of time to sit there and growl at you or growl inside of you. <laughs> not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying very difficult to even get this into view without a strong awareness practice. This is why, I, basically, why I stopped teaching uh, uh, Shamatha Vipassana or, uh, mindfulness awareness practice. I'm not against that. I may, I may teach that. I think I do occasionally when a person is dealing with things in a certain way. They need more solid reference point meditation. They need to be aware of their breath, or they might might be good for them to to do a, a mantra practice. And, and I might 
would talk with them. It would be mutual. We would talk about it. I would, we would, uh, would find out what's happening in their mind stream when they're sitting for all day or a couple of block sets or something when they run into um, trying to walk down the hallway and they run into uh, 15,000 coat hangers all laying on the floor. How are you going to walk through that? I don't need to just look at it. Just look at it. Just look at the difficulty without any outflow, any blaming. It's really hard to do because it's because people situations are ready to be blamed. You blame someone, what will they do? Defend themselves. If you blame someone and they receive it, they'll look like a wimp. If, they, if you notice they don't do anything because you misunderstand someone who's able to actually receive your outflow because of the, the genuineness of that person. And, and because you can't stand to think that someone could actually handle a negativity coming from you the way you can't handle it from someone else. You want to fight with them. They're not going to fight with you. They receive that. They look at you. They say, I understand how you feel. It looks like I see what, what's going on. Well, do you agree? Not necessarily. You have to either agree or disagree. We get in all kinds of existential <clears throat> fistfights with our partners, with our friends, with our uh, once in a while it happens in the direction of the teacher. We've had a few of those happen on occasion where there's just intense disagreement. Quite often that will put the students through a gauntlet that they don't really enjoy. And sometimes uh, they, they aren't up for that. So they'll just, uh, they'll just, they may, they may just leave and I'll never hear from them again. That's happened a few times. And then, uh, because they think that it's something I did. Uh, and it's not that I didn't do something, but very difficult to be responsible for whatever rises in your mind stream. Whatever rises in your mind stream, no matter who did it, is yours. Even if somebody comes up and hits you, that is, that's your nerve endings. You, you might say, well, yeah, but they hit me. Yeah, they did. But look closely at what that is. They're suffering. and they're, This is the way they get rid of the suffering. Put it on you. We do that psychologically. We do it physically. We do it uh, in our mind stream without the person even knowing that we're doing that. Do you feel lectured too? <laughs> Good question. Yes. Question from Tomas in the UK. Tomas. Dear teacher. How do you know how to pronounce his name? I'm just guessing. Is it because there's no H there? T-O-M-A-S-Z. Yeah, and I think, yes, that's good. Go ahead, please. I was just curious. <laughs> Dear teacher, can I practice chanting on chakras and practice Buddha teachings? How do they compare to each other? Does chanting on chakras replace meditation? Thank you. So I've done some of that, uh, several different kinds of practices, dealing with chakras, dealing with visualizations, dealing with mantras. And I would say it, it, it's possible that can be helpful to you. The most important thing I can say, based on what I'm seeing, you're, you're asking me, so I'm going to say, I am going to say this, make sure you have a teacher. If you're going to do any kind of meditation, even Chikantaza, at some point, you're going to need to talk to somebody that might know a little bit more about this than you do. In other words, somebody who's practiced this a little longer like 20, 30, 40 years longer and, and say, this is happening, that's happening. What do I do here? How do I handle this? That, that way you're getting it 
from that kind of a background. Whereas if I say to you, speculate on what you're saying, it could be, could be accurate, could be very good advice for you or very good recommendation. But I hesitate to, to say that. I would trust you. And I would say, if this is something you want to do and you feel like it's important to you and somehow it's supportive to you in some way, find a teacher. If you don't have a teacher, you need a human teacher that can look you right in the eye and relate to you where you are. That's what I would say to that. Kayan Boeing, how do boundaries such as forms help to dissolve boundaries of the mind? Thank you. So the boundary uh, form, like having a monastery or having a, a room where you meditate or having a structure, we call it an altar or uh, a shrine where there's an image of uh, someone who's who kind of started this whole commotion uh, 2,500 years ago, an image of that. You're not worshiping that. You're paying respect to your own enlightened nature, which is not separate from the Buddha. So when you bow to that, it gives you this form of using the whole body. Body and mind are not two different things. They just intensely look like it, but they're not. Just like the, the right hand, is this the right? Yeah. yeah, the right hand and the left hand are not the same thing. But they kind of do the same thing, don't they? Nobody's going to answer me. So yeah, I'm, I'm taking it maybe a little bit into an area that gets a little uh, uh, silly or quaint. But it's about the, the, separa the separations are all over the place, and they are functional separations. Uh, like, like two hands, like two eyes, two nostrils, one mouth. You don't need two mouths. But it's, it's situational. So um, coming back to the question, um, what was the question? Kayun Bowing, how do boundaries in the form of forms help to dissolve boundaries of the mind, Bowing? So I, I feel that it is the repetition uh, and the simplicity of it. We come. We sit down, we hold still, <clears throat> and we, we, the, the body uh, becomes somewhat, not totally, but somewhat of a clean slate. It's very still. And we uh, look at a wall where there's nothing as much is happening. If you came here, you might see a, a scroll hanging in, in front of you, but that's only an entertainment for a few minutes. Eventually, it's just another shape or color in front of you. So you would sit down, hold still. And then what would continue to move is the mind. And it might start out with a commentary on the nature of the wall. I've had people come and look at the wall and say, it looks like cottage cheese. So, okay, well, it won't for long. It'll eventually it won't have any kind of particular definition to it or description. So bringing yourself, bringing ourselves to uh, a point of stillness, sitting very still and, and silence to some extent because we're not commenting on anything particularly and we're watching. And so you can't see consciousness. Consciousness, the only way you know there is such a thing as consciousness is something arises in it. Without consciousness, uh, without something arising, you wouldn't know it. And if you actually see what it is, uh, then you see that uh, um, 
that everything that looks like a separation, a separate thing, a separate dynamic is not really separate. It's separated, but it's fundamental. You begin to see the fundamental nature of what this is, which is consciousness only. It's an ancient teaching, not something I made up, but it's something I look at and I teach from what I'm looking at, not not from knowledge. But I might look at the six paramitas and look through that and say, yep, this is a... You know, I can talk about this. I can use this structure because it's helpful to work with the way the mind goes this way and goes, goes, works with patience, works with energy, works with meditation, works with generosity and so on and works with, uh, with clear seeing or prajna or wisdom. So those, those concepts or constructs, it's helpful to, to use those to try to address something. It's very difficult to, to describe what wisdom is because it's not a thing. It's something that you are. And you, you are that when you no longer are differentiating and dividing uh, in consciousness between yourself and anything else. More? Kayun? Not, not about Kayun going, not quite yet. Uh, I'm going to marinate. Okay. But, uh, Deb has a question in the chat. Okay, Deb. Deb Bowing, what is the difference between input and output and cause and effect, Bowing? So it's kind of a generic, I mean, it's a somewhat blanket question. Um, so cause and effect is a, creates the illusion that we have a say-so. We think we're somebody and we think that we can stop this, start that, push on that. So there's the cause. Here's the cause coming through the air, and then there's the effect, which is a third thing. This, it's that. And then the third thing is sound. Or also, if you're looking, it's a visual coming, coming to, together of two separate things. So, but you already know this. So I'm not sure what it is, that question. I'm not sure what you're actually looking for. I, I would talk more about it maybe, but can you say something? Go ahead, Deb. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out what, where the question is coming from and what I'm wanting to know. Um, maybe it has something to do with the illusion that I have that I have control over certain things and I don't have control over other things. And what's the difference between that? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I do understand cause and effect bowing, okay. but um, the input and output, I, I guess I still get tangled up in that. I can help you. I, I don't know. When I say I can help you, my intention is to help you. Whether it actually helps you, that I don't know. Because I, I don't know all the causes and conditions that are arising in terms of your karma or all of the things you're dealing with, passion, aggression, ignorance in your particular life. But the control is an illusion. You have no control. You have a little bit. I can pick this up and put it down. Whoop de doo. Uh, you can have a little bit of control. You can give, you get yourself out the door to walk, uh, walk out to the car. So you have some control. But there is the amount of uh, things that are moving this way and that way, even in the physical world, let alone the mental or emotional or, or uh, consciousness area. Uh, you, you have no say so about what's going on in your body. A little bit, we can put an aspirin in there, or we can get a, a massage, or we can, but we ha we don't really, this whole situation just operates in its own dynamic. We didn't create these. We didn't create this. 
There, there's no personhood behind any of that. But when this shows up as a human being who, who's operating out of consciousness, then we look to find out what we can control and what we have a say-so over. Not a lot. And so I would say, look at the nature of control itself. Look, look at, at who, who is it that's trying to control and what is it you're trying to control? And that, that's, I emphasize the what question, not why. We can always say, why will take you in circles? Why will put you, will stop you just like looking at a wall? Why or, or what rather? What is this? And you eventually will see that what you are looking at, you are not separate from. That takes a while. And it won't come up as a conclusion. It'll just come up as the truth. It won't be some kind of thing you've suddenly concluded. <clears throat> just keep, pra keep practicing. Keep sitting. Keep looking at that. That's kind of an existential area that, that you know, gives birth to philosophers. But it doesn't really give birth to meditators, necessarily, unless they've met the Buddha or met uh, someone who is, uh, teaches that. Go ahead. I have a question regarding the boundary of time. I have a large circle of family and friends, um, good relationships overall, um, very positive. And so I have a push-pull between the Bodhisattva vow to be with all things and then time for my spiritual practice. Could you speak to the, uh, the subject of boundary of time, vowing? So it's uh, for each person, a family, all of those are some, some people, it's just obvious there. Some people are here in a monastery wearing robes. They're obviously putting their spiritual path, their family might say themselves against everything else, but they're putting their spiritual path, as far as I can see it, ahead of their, of their family. This is why in ancient times, they were called leavers of home. They would, because you couldn't practice if you uh, worked in your, in your father's uh, granary or uh, or your, your father was a king, as in the case of the Buddha, he had to leave home. His father wanted him to stay there and take over to being, he was a prince, to be taken over and couldn't do it. He, he, he had seen sickness, aging and death. He'd seen, uh, the story goes, he saw uh, someone who was very sick. He saw someone who was very old. Uh, he saw someone who was, who was uh, he saw a corpse. And so uh, he saw impermanence and he, he had to, his, his life, he, well, he was in his 30s, I guess, had to go and find out what this was. And the Brahmins around him, he, those were not, seemed, didn't seem to be satisfactory. Hard to say what, what that looked like to him, we could speculate, but he had to go and find this himself. And so in your situation, uh, you can just look at your own situation and find out what you'll know if you look at it closely, look at the causes and conditions, look at the relationships and put your, your, your training, uh, training yourself, give that, give that a lot of uh, emphasis. If you can, you might have a, your connection to a particular um, a relative or something it might be very, very intense and might be very strong and very, and pulling you away. And they might have very good, uh, the things they say that, you know, magnetizes you to do what they're doing. They may, they may have a spiritual path. They may not. They may have a something uh, that that they call a spiritual path, but it, and it's not that it isn't. It's just not this. It's not uh, 
it, it has to do with with you know, looking up and worshiping something. This is not about worshiping anything. So I, if you have a specific question about it, I might be able to address it. I feel like I've um, maybe not responded in a way that's helpful. Uh, Sharon Bowing. Uh, no, that's that's helpful. I, I guess I'm at a, a kind of at a juncture of, you know, I have a lot of flexibility with my time and a lot of relationships that are you know, uplifting or I'm helpful or I, I feel good about. However, there's only so much time in the day and um, I want to devote much more time to meditation, my spiritual back practice, being with you, being with the community and such. So um, I guess I'm just aware of, uh, acutely aware of being at that juncture, Bowie. Okay, I'll put it this way. I'll, I'll give you something. I'll, I am functioning as your teacher. I'll tell you what to do, which I, I sometimes tell a lot of people what to do, but they have to really give me permission. You might not like what I'm about to tell you. Actually, it might be quite funny. Go forth. Are you retired? Uh, Semi-retired. What does that mean? Uh, I work part-time. How many hours? Oh, probably eight hours a week. Okay. Do you work in the morning from 6 to 8 o'clock? No, I do not. Set your alarm at 5.30, get up, take care of personal needs, start sitting at 6 o'clock and sit until 8 o'clock. Do it every day. And then the rest of the day you have for your, that way you have not only for your family, but also, and then go to a couple of book studies. There are, right now I think there are 11 book studies a week, that, and I attend every one of them. I attend one of them that, you're, that you join to answer questions for about half an hour or so on every one. And all of those last about 45 minutes. And so go to a couple of those a week. And that's, that's a lot of practice. So you would be going, you'd be getting up. And, you know, if, if there's a day where you can't do it, or, you know, six to eight doesn't work, then get up at five and go to seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've had, I've had some people who just can't sit. They just don't, they can't get there. They just don't. So I give them a, a technique that I've actually had to use myself a few years ago is as soon as you wake up, begin, uh, begin um, um, one of the reminders or say, uh, I, I vow to be with all things. Say it, say it, say it over and over and over as you're walking in to brush your teeth. I vow to be with all things. I mean this. I vow to be with all things. I'm going to look at everything completely thoroughly through and through and through over and over. I'm never going to give up. Encourage yourself, and you may need a, a conventional uh, uh, bow to the altar, something to, to encourage you to do that. If it's if it's helpful to you, hear me saying that to you. I certainly uh, remembered my teachers' voices, both of them, and I those ran through my mind over and over and over and over again. And so. And then get to that get to that cushion. This doesn't mean that if something comes up in the middle of that, you don't get up and take care of the, whatever business may be. So there's some, uh, what call it flexibility or reasonability about it. You have a form, and observing the form does not mean obeying it. I'll say that again. To observe a form, the way I teach it, doesn't mean obeying. That means that if we're sitting in here and in the monastery, 
or relate it to your own uh, area that you meditate in. If you can't, can't if, you, if everybody here in the, in the, who are monastery residents, they come in and they, they practice and they know the form. But if someone doesn't show up, they haven't, they're not doing anything wrong. But we would communicate about it, not by way of judging somebody and say, so what's happening to this person or that person? Well, they're, they're not feeling well. So, so it's always reasonable. It's never like a demand. Now, if a person lived in the monastery and never meditated, then we might say, why don't you move out? Why don't you go somewhere else and live? And we've ac I've actually said that before to people, and they stay. So you could do something like that in your own in your own house, write it down. And anybody that you're living with, make sure they, they know that this is something, this is a form that you are endeavoring to observe. Have a form. That's why we have a monastery. You, you can't, it's very hard to do this without forms and without, without a teacher, a teaching, and a community. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. That's why this uh, amazing, the three jewels has been so helpful. <clears throat> not something to believe in, at least not the way it's taught here. It's something you observe. Thank you. I heard you. It's penetrating. Okay. Very good. Another question from Adriana. Adriana. Is no demand a rejection of dependent origination? No demand is just it's something to observe and you observe the way you demand. So there, if there's no demand, you won't particularly know that. And I would say to, re to respond directly to your question, no. But, but watch what you do with that. When you say when I say that to you, just say with what I just said. When I say stay with it, don't maintain it, but ret return to what I just said not to what you think about what I said. Because what you think about what I said is an elaboration on what I said and is not what I said. Don't elaborate. And if you do elaborate, then just see the way that those elaborations are cover-ups. We, we don't want the truth. We want to have an interpretation of the truth that we can see uh, and see if we can get some confirmation by re reading Jean-Paul Sartre or someone else. <clears throat> well, should we close? Getting kind of, kind of late. Kozan Bowen, Jishin has a question in the chat box. Jishin, go ahead, or Kozan, go ahead for, for Jishin. Do boundaries start with labeling something, Bowen? Oh, my goodness, yes. Oh, my badness, yes. Labelingly, we're always we, we, it's a it's the label will come up just in, as soon as something happens. We've got a label. It's like I used to call it post-it notes, and then somebody whined at me because they just got tired of me using that word post-it note all the time. And what did I do? I felt really sad. Stopped using it. <laughs> but it is it's like that. It's like we put put a sticker on things because it. Because then that allows us to give, have some kind of a reference point for that, rather than seeing the emptiness of whatever shows up. Everything that shows up is empty of our thoughts, of our post-it notes, of our labeling. It's empty. Random labeling is a, a teaching that uh, I think uh, 
I think uh, Trunk Rinpoche was the, where I heard that uh, random labeling. We're always commenting on everything, random, random. So it's about observing that. I mean, I could say don't, don't label or don't project or don't, 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 don't. We can have a lot of don'ts, but the practice of working with that is to see how it's pretty difficult to stop that, but we can watch the way we can't stop. If you can watch the way you can't, you can't stop something, you're, you're beginning to work with that in a radical way. In other words, in, at the root of that situation. And that, that situation can't hold up for very long if you continue to return to the what is that, rather than cover it with a label. Eventually that leads to, if I say it, I can say it this way, it leads to seeing the fundamental truth. There is no self anywhere. And there's no otherness that everything is empty of self, empty of other. Easy to say, and uh, can take your whole life to see that truth yourself. So that you can actually say that and know that you're describing something that is the case for you. Take one last question if there is one. Any, anything in here? Any, anyone on Zoom that hasn't asked, asked a question? Jalen. The identity, the the big boundary, barring? Yes. Yes, our personal identity is a strong boundary. If you think you know who you are, or if you're uh, one of the really almost comical ways that we hear it from others, someone will, I'm not, I'm not discounting anyone's intelligence, but sometimes people will actually say, they'll show you the way they have an identity that they grasp at by saying, um, uh, well, I'm the kind of person that always meet, eats my dessert first before I eat the meal. I just, I, that's what I was taught and that's what I do. I'm just that kind of person. And so it's kind of a, it looks kind of casual, but it's, that's a sign uh, probably that there's quite a bit of a grasping at a, at a somebody. I'm the kind of person. So what kind of person are you? Kayla. I'm the kind of person that meditates a lot. Nah, that's a lie. I don't meditate very much. Jalen Bowery. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that thinks I know a lot, then I <laughs> think that I don't know a lot, so then I think that I know a lot because I don't know a lot. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's extremely well described. So is there a question in that? That's pretty good. Okay, I'll give you an answer. I don't know. Oh, I like that. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a response. Sit more. Sit a lot. Get back to the wall as much as you can, over and over and over again. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Hi, my name is Sokuren, and I'm one of Sokuzan's monks. Sokuzan so freely offers his love to us and his wisdom through these talks and never asks us for anything in return. If you value what he does and what he is and want them to continue, please visit our donate page at sokukoji.org. Thank you.